Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the new podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. This week's main story focuses not on Broadway, but after Broadway, when a play or musical is ready to be licensed out to professional and amateur playhouses around the country. We'll turn to Bruce Lazarus, Executive Director at Samuel French, for a crash course on the licensing process. Then, we'll bring in Howard Sherman, Director of the Arts Integrity Initiative at the New School of Performing Arts, to discuss contemporary issues in licensing and copyright. But first, here's what you need to know this week on The Great White Way. Starting with grosses, we just finished out week 34 of the year, a historically hard time on Broadway as the end of summer nears and outdoor and out-of-town activities draw people away from the theater. The total gross was $28.67 million, a 5.4% drop from last week and well below the 2017 weekly average of $35 million. However, last year saw an even bigger drop over the same period of time, and we are performing 25% better than we did last year at this point. Now, there are a few key explanations for why we're doing so much better this year than last year. First is that this year, there are so many juggernauts, which have proven to be impervious to historical industry low points, These include Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, and Hello, Dolly. The second factor is that we currently have four more shows running on Broadway than we had at this time last year. But even when you look at the gross per show, we're still performing 8% better than we did last year. That brings us to talking about the upcoming real estate changes on the Great White Way, which I think is the third thing contributing to the strength of the box office last week. As an example, On Your Feet closed this weekend on a high at $1.2 million, which was over $150,000 more than what it grossed last week, and one of the few productions that made more this week than it did last week. Speaking of closings, in the past two weeks alone, we've seen over 10 opening and closing notices. To give us an overview of these announced changes, I bring in Broadway World reporter and my co-producer of the report, Matt Temenini. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Good, Oliver. How are you? Very good. So uh, there there were like 10 or 11 announced, some hard, you know, some that were sort of circling and some that weren't announced openings and closings since our last episode, which is a lot. Yeah, and it seemed like they all came in like the course of two or three days. We had just a ton of stuff announcing between closings and openings, whether they were for this coming season or for next season. Um, a lot of things happening at one time. It felt like we'd been going through a drought of theater Broadway news, and then we just all of a sudden got a downpour of stuff. So it does seem like they all came at once really quickly. So let's talk about – let's start with closings. There were three – announced closings, all new musicals this season, Groundhog, Bandstand, and Great Comet. And they all close in September, I believe. Correct. And that means, you know, those were um, open runs. So that's now three theaters that were not available that, that are. Are any of those three theaters ones that we then had announcements, uh, opening announcements on? Um, yes and no. We we know that Bandstand is closing at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater on September 17th. We then got the announcement that Denzel Washington was going to come in The Iceman Cometh in March, but that does leave the fall open at the Jacobs if they want to put something in for one of those short limited runs or maybe a holiday show or something, they could do that. Other than that, there's been nothing announced for the Imperial where Natasha Pekin the Great Comet of 1812 was. And uh, same thing for the August Wilson uh, where Groundhog Day will be closing on the 17th as well. We don't have anything either there for the fall or the spring. Gotcha. Um, and so now now let's talk about openings. So um, you talked about the Iceman Cometh. What are the other openings uh, that were announced for the spring? 
guess we'll go in reverse. Yeah, for the spring, we got, um, in no particular order, um, Tom Hollander in Travesties, which is a transfer of a London production, a Tom Stoppard play. That'll be coming into the American Airlines Theater um, on March 29th for this first preview. Um, we had that. We then also had another production coming into a roundabout house that's not necessarily a roundabout original production, and that's the Kenny Leon-directed production of Children of a Lesser God, starring Joshua Jackson. That was just out of town, had a really good kind of short run, um, I believe, at the Berkshires. That's going to be coming into into Studio 54 on March 22nd. So those are the two new ones for this coming spring that we had announced. We also did get official um, first preview and opening dates for Frozen. It's going to have its first preview on February 22nd, and it's opening on March 22nd, and they released their first block of tickets, and then the next day they released a new block of tickets. No surprise there that people are buying tickets <laughs> right. to see Frozen. Um, so the, that's kind of what the new information we have for the f- for the spring, spring is. Yeah. So I, I want to use that to then now jump into fall. So uh, specifically the Children of a Lesser God announcement, because like like you said about uh, the Iceman Cometh, which is going to go into the uh, Jacobs, there's nothing planned for the fall. Now, the same thing was the case at the time of the Children of a Lesser God uh, announcement, but we learned this morning, uh, Wednesday morning, that now they've booked Studio 54 for the fall. Correct. They are bringing in the production of John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons. It played out west and then had a run at the public theater. They're going to bring that in beginning. This is kind of an interesting run, Oliver. It's it's starting previews on October 19th and is scheduled to run through February 4th. You don't see a lot of those shows that play during the holidays going into February. Usually you'll see early to mid-January closings, but it's kind of Mm. a necessity of the fact that they've had Studio 54 closed or vacant since Sweat closed back in the spring, and they want to get something in there and use it as much as possible. So we do have now Studio 54. If you look at the 2017 into 2018, you had Holiday Inn close in January. Then you had Sweat have a short run in the spring. It's been closed all the way up until October where a one man show Latin history for morons will play. And then that'll go into another straight play in the spring. Studio 54 has really been where roundabout has put most of its Broadway musicals. They've had a couple at the American airlines, but that's actually been because there was another musical at studio 54. So with beautiful still at the Stephen Sondheim, it's looking like there's less and less opportunities for RTC to get a musical in this season. Right. And, and as of right now, they don't have one, at least in this, in the season as we know it on Broadway. Correct. So there's still room for them to give their subscribers a musical after the Tony Awards. Correct. Um, as part of their subs- year, season subscription. But as far as the 2017 18 season roundabout is all plays. As of now, so they far. do. Yeah, there's – I mean, I would be shocked if they get a musical in there, but there technically is a gap later this year in between when Time of the Conways ends its run at the American Airlines Theater. It's currently scheduled to close on November 26th. Travesties is set to begin its first preview on March 29th. That does leave – generally, they try to have about a three-week window for Roundabout to get shows in and out. So technically, they could have a production from – mid-December to early March in at the American Airlines, if they wanted, that seems to be kind of pretty tight, no opportunity for extensions, and that doesn't seem like something RTC would do with the musical, especially in their smallest of their three houses. But technically, I just want to put it all on the table. They could fit something right. there if they wanted to. I just wouldn't bet a whole lot of money on it being a musical if they do. So really quick, the other fall shows that we're looking forward to that have been announced this week, I think... Mm-hmm. Meteor Shower with Amy Schumer, and that'll be in the booth, uh, which currently does not have anything Correct. booked for the spring. Uh, what else? There's uh, I, that's that's, that, that's that's it. We've talked about Latin history for morons, and then yeah, Springsteen. We knew had you know was coming into the curve. We just never really knew when they confirmed their dates. It's actually earlier than I thought, Oliver. And maybe you have some insight on this. We had originally heard that it was going to be in November, kind of going into December, kind of spanning that holiday season. But it's actually going to begin performances in early October and run through just after Thanksgiving. Now, of course. Knowing that this is going to sell out every performance, they could extend it into December if they wanted to. So I don't know if it was a play to try to maximize 
profits. Um, but I was a little surprised that they were starting so early for what's supposed to be a very limited run. Right. And I think could be either that it's an attempt to sell tickets to show to performances that are sooner, quicker, because they know they're not going to have a problem selling those shows and then, you know, announce an extension. It could be that and or that, you know, there were some rumblings. Um, I don't think there was anything confirmed, but there, there was a lot of talk between when the, when the production was announced and when we got these official dates that there were some obstacles that the production had fallen into mm. that they weren't expecting. And so perhaps those were scheduling conflicts that this new schedule takes into account. Um, mm, interesting. E- either of those could, could be the case. Um, so obviously there's, there's still a lot more. There's still a lot of real estate, uh, empty houses, uh, for both the fall and the spring, um, that we should learn more about in the coming weeks. But we also this week, uh, or, or sorry, in the last, uh, last week got our first opening date announcement for the 2018-2019 season. Yeah. Not the first show, but the first opening date. We'd already heard that. The King Kong musical was going to be coming into the Broadway theater um, in the fall of 2018. And we know that Straight White Men is going to be playing at the Helen Hayes. But we don't really know exactly the dates on those. The thing that really kind of – this was a shock to me, uh, Oliver, and obviously as we'll get into, you knew about this before almost anybody else. But the new musical, Getting the Band Back Together, is going to be coming uh, to Broadway beginning on its first preview on July 19th. Um, and that is going to be going into the Belasco. And that is a show that O. Henry Productions is a producer on, and we'll kind of get more into that later. But what so fascinates me about this announcement, Oliver, is that there was really no – rumors about this there was no lead up to this and if i'm being quite frank and no offense to uh the lead producer on the show ken davenport i think a lot of people had kind of forgotten about this show other than him this is a show that he's been working on he's a co-creator of the show for four or five years and i just don't think a lot of people thought that they were going to see this on broadway so when the announcement came out that it was coming it literally came 363 days before the opening day um when that was finally announced i think that's a really smart move one, because it's a show that hadn't been, you know, as fresh on people's minds as something like the Dream Girls revival or the Share show or Honey, uh, Roman Holiday, a lot of these other musicals that was getting a lot of pub and rumors. So it gives him a year to get excitement up both from audiences and um, maybe investors if you guys are still working on that. But then also it fills a slot for the Schuberts because Farinelli and the King is going to be closing in March. It obviously could extend. If not, they it would be hard to fit something else in there with short notice into the summer. So it kind of works both for the production team, which is you guys, and the Schuberts who own the Belasco. So I was I thought it was a really smart move to announce this early. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, and uh, you know, I think Ken really, you know, all the things that you said went into um, factor into the press announcement, like we talked about. Um, in both of the last two episodes, there's also this, you know, sometimes contracts get signed and then the announcement happens much later. And I think this is a case where those two were, were closer together. And, and a lot of the <laughs> strategy behind that was, was what you've already articulated. What I think is also really interesting about this, again, uh, from the side of the theater owners is that if you look at each theater and the, uh, their sort of schedule, the only theaters that have a current fall, spring, and then announced 2018, 2019 show already booked are the nonprofits that have their seasons and the Belasco. There is no other, there's no other commercial house that is booked so far in advance. So I think it was extremely smart, uh, of the Schuberts to, Take that opportunity to keep rent, keep rent coming in for now. What looks like, you know, uh, assured almost a, a full year, um, in a house that also generally has been taking in plays in, in the last few mm-hmm. years. Yeah. And it is a really interesting. Currently, 
uh, Michael Moore's The Terms of My Surrender is at the Belasco. That will end, I think it's late October. And then um, the great, every, I just giggle every time I think about Mark Rylance. Um, the great Mark Rylance is bringing Farinelli and the King in, in beginning in December and running through March 25th. Anytime you have Mark Rylance on Broadway, there's a chance that that can extend uh, maybe another month to meet the Tony eligibility deadline. Right. And then you guys come in in, um, in July. And so it's really leaving them with just a short little time of maybe two, three months over the course of an entire calendar year when the Belasco is not going to be booked. So it really seems like a win-win for everybody. For sure. And I, I just, while we're talking about uh, Farinelli and the King and their schedule, it's really interesting. And I'm, you know, you know that I'm a, a sucker for sort of very early Tony uh, analysis. And what's sort of interesting is you have Mark Rylance, who is a beloved actor and a Tony-winning actor and now an Oscar-winning actor and is sure to get uh, awards buzz, if not a nomination in, in, you know, anything sure. he does. What's really strange is that generally when you have that, a production will book their run to go just past the nomin, uh, like a play will mm-hmm. usually, um, have their announced closing performance just past the nomination day. And then should they pick up the nominations that they're expecting will extend past the Tony award so that they can ride on that, uh, you know, ride on that wave of, of, of buzz. It's sort of odd that they're, uh, that this production has such an early, um, announced closing. And so I'm, you know, it's a, it's a production to follow. And, uh, you know, it's unclear to me right now whether that was a scheduling, um, uh, reason that that's when they could get the, the theater and the actors, or if there is some, you know, sort of modification to that strategy that we've seen play out year after year. Yeah, it is a transfer of a production that was done in London. So uh, maybe he just said, I've got a movie I've got to do, so I can't do right. this for too long. But we'll wait and see. But uh, yeah. like I said, anytime he's in something in New York, there is a chance that it could extend and get a ton for of sure. award nominations as is. All right. So the other thing that you kind of mentioned, Oliver, that we talked about a few minutes ago is kind of the strange scheduling going on with the Roundabout Theater Company. And as you mentioned, it is a subscription house. Um, it has three theaters on Broadway, but currently none of the shows scheduled for their 2017-2018 season, either on Broadway or off Broadway, are musicals. And this is a, a theater company that does a lot of plays, does a lot of revivals, but also does a lot of new works through their underground series. But no musicals are on their schedule. And they really have made a name with doing some really great revivals over the years and championing some some really kind of groundbreaking works, whether it's cabaret or assassins. But for 2017-2018's Broadway season, there are no musicals. As you mentioned, the roundabout subscription season does kind of bleed over into the summer. The currently running Marvin's Room that will actually close at the end of this week. That is technically part of their 2016-2017 subscription season. So they could put a musical on the back end for their subscribers. But as you said earlier, it's not going to be Tony eligible. So it's really interesting to me that unless... Unless... Beautiful closes at the Stephen Sondheim Theater. It doesn't look like they're going to get a musical in there. Um, and and I don't know if you want to talk about Beautiful, which I, I know you love the grosses. It's one of the weirdest and most fascinating stories and grosses to me is is how beautiful kind of ebbs and flows in the opposite direction of what our yeah. general things are with 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 Broadway grosses. Um, so I personally don't see it closing. It very well could close in in January. Who knows? But if you look through its entire run, and I was doing this for an article I wrote for Broadway World, it tends to not do as well in the summer as it does in the fall. If you look back into August of 2016, July and August, it was hovering in the mid to low 700s. Once Labor Day hit, boom, it was up to over 900,000 every week. And then it hit um, over a million two weeks in, in October. Then in the high eights and the low to mid nines in November, then back up above a million for December. It's really not what we normally think a Broadway musical is going to do in terms of the schedule of its grosses. So I have to think that over the last two years, We've seen bumps in its its attendance and its box office for 2015 and 2016 once we get past Labor Day. I, I don't have any reason to say that that won't happen again in 2017. And if it does, I, I would be shocked to not see it make it through another spring and back into the summer again. 
yeah, it's it's something to to keep watch of. And actually, beautiful. Um, you know, we we talked uh, before we started talking to you about the grosses and uh, how in general shows did worse this week than last week. But that's sort of the trend you know, of of the calendar going into this week. Beautiful had one of the smallest box office drops of any uh, of the shows playing, and so it's sort of a beast of its own. It's it's something we're going to keep an eye on. I, I I agree with you. I don't necessarily see it closing at the end of the season I, or at the end of this um, holiday season. Season. I also think that a show like this is a show like Beautiful is one that it's been running for quite a long time. It has people that are from at this point from the theater community who maybe aren't Carol King fans, but who know that of it, you know, that it's been so successful and Carol King fans. Like it has a, a wide enough audience that it probably will want a good buffer between the day it announces closing and the day it closes to get the last, That's a good point. you know, uh, the last push of people who haven't seen the show. I'm embarrassed to say I have not yet seen that show. And, oh, uh, it's really I, good. It I, is I, really I have, good. I, I have to go. I, I actually had plans to see it this summer and then didn't. Uh, and I'm, I am not waiting. Uh, I will go. I'm not waiting for that closing announcement, but you can be sure that if they announced closing tomorrow, I would get, I would buy a ticket tomorrow. And there are a lot of people like me. I mean, it's one of the few shows on Broadway that I haven't seen right now. Um, and, uh, I think that, I don't know. I think that if it's going to close, we're going to find out pretty soon. Yeah, that's kind of what we saw from something like Jersey Boys, which is similar in a lot of ways because it's a, you know, a jukebox musical from beloved performers. Um, a little different that it ran, you know, almost four times as long as Beautiful has already, but it did give us like a good six to maybe eight month, uh, lead time before it actually closed. So that's probably a decent strategy. And I would imagine that if it does announce closing, say around January, that roundabout really should get on trying to get some musical in there. You and I both have heard plenty of rumors as to what where they were very close to bringing into this season and just couldn't make it work. Perhaps with the Stephen Sondheim back under their control, which is the largest of their three Broadway theaters, maybe they can make some of those finances work on some of those other shows. But I got to be honest, if I'm a subscriber to the Roundabout Theater Company, yes, I know that I always want to stay on because who knows what great thing they could do next season. But I would imagine there would be a decent amount of subscribers who would be disappointed that they didn't get a single musical on or off Broadway in the entire season if things don't change from here to the end of the summer of 2018. Yeah, and and actually just... Just because you brought up Jersey Boys, we should also say, if we're talking about closings and openings, that they announced Jersey Boys would be yeah. opening off-Broadway at the New World Stages um, in a sort of size-down version of the Broadway production. But, but, but yeah, back, back to Roundabout, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely not their normal season. Something While you were talking, something that, that just popped into my mind as a possible explanation is that they might have, you know, they've been doing a lot of uh, commercial productions inside their houses with Sweat and Children of a Lesser God, it, Beautiful, and I wonder if maybe there are some larger musicals that they're thinking about doing and they want the Sondheim for and they're now waiting instead of pushing them into the uh, into Studio 54 waiting it out for the sun. I'm, it's a possibility. Yeah. Um, it's certainly something I, I, I would be shocked if it's not something that's talked about on a daily basis, uh, on a daily basis inside Roundabout. In other news from this week, there are two upcoming events geared towards industry insiders, which were announced Broadway con industry day and TEDx Broadway. BroadwayCon, the annual conference for Broadway and theater lovers, will host a day of conversations for industry insiders on January 25, 2018 at the Crown Plaza in Times Square. The 7th annual TEDx Broadway will return to New World Stages on Tuesday, February 27th. Tickets for both events are now available on their respective websites. The New York International Fringe Festival has announced that it will return though smaller than in the past, in October 2018. The New York Fringe has given a jump start to many successful shows, including the 2002 Best Musical nominee, Urinetown. Hamilton released an official app for Android and iOS last week. 
The production reported that it was downloaded over 500,000 times within its first three days of release. We are looking forward to seeing what the show is able to accomplish with its venture into the mobile app market. BroadwayWorld.com launched its Industry Insider section earlier this month. Industry Insider delivers informative, insightful, no-nonsense features and commentary, along with practical tools for executive professionals working in the theater industry on Broadway and around the world. Be sure to check that out, because that's where we'll be getting our news for future episodes of The O'Henry Report. Unfortunately, the theater community mourns the loss of several members this week. Barbara Cook, who won a Tony Award for her work in The Music Man, passed away on August 8th. She most recently graced the Broadway stage in 2010 in Sondheim on Sondheim. On Thursday, August 17th, six-time Tony Award winner Stuart Thompson passed away. His Tony Award winning productions include Proof, Skylight, and The Book of Mormon. On Monday, August 21st, the theater community was robbed of another Broadway icon, Thomas Meehan. Meehan wrote the Tony Award-winning books to some of Broadway's most beloved modern musicals, Annie, The Producers, and Hairspray. Our main story this week focuses on licensing. Earlier in the week, the New York Times reported of a licensing dispute between the Sharon Playhouse in Connecticut and Music Theater International, or MTI, over a production of The Music Man directed by Morgan Green. In this production, there were changes to sets, roles, and songs. When MTI, which licenses The Music Man, was informed of these changes, representatives contacted the Sharon Playhouse demanding that the production be performed as specified in the license or risk being shut down. After the requisite changes were made, MTI has allowed the production to continue. This wasn't the first time this month that we had a licensing dispute make the news. In the beginning of August, the Shelton Theater, a San Francisco-based playhouse, was forced to shut down its production of Stephen Adley Gerges's The Last Days of Judas Iscariot for violating copyright. We're going to return to these disputes, and particularly the Shelton Theater production, when we talk to Howard Sherman. Before we get into the copyright law at play in these instances, we need to have a firm understanding of how these playhouses acquire the license to produce the plays. For that, I spoke with Bruce Lazarus, the executive director of Samuel French, a licensing house. The reason we're focusing on licensing in this episode is unfortunately because of the recent news um, in a couple of instances of abuses or violations of copyright from licensed productions. But since we're talking about it, I wanted to give a little bit of a background just in terms of the process of licensing in the first place. So uh, if you can search so, so a, a production gets done in New York or uh, you know somewhere else in the country, and the producers and the playwright decide that that's, that that's it. They're not going to produce their version of that production anymore. And then they seek to uh, license it out. What is the process um, by which that piece then ends up in the Sam French catalog? Let me, let me just back it up a second and say that um, Samuel French uh, publishes and licenses stage plays and musicals. So when we acquire a title for our catalog, we are acquiring two separate rights. The right to publish the script and also the right to uh, act as the agent for the property and license the property. And it's usually for the length, the life of the copyright. So we are representing uh, for our our licensed properties, the secondary rights. So not the first class rights, not the right to produce it on Broadway or in the West End of London or in a first class tour, mm-hmm. but all other rights, professional and amateur, um, we act as the agent for. And we take a commission. 
uh, we take a commission of 10% on professional productions and a 20% commission on amateur productions. The balance of the money goes directly to the playwright. Um, so in the case of an amateur production, the playwright's getting 80% of the royalties that are generated. And the, in the case of a professional production, 90% of it. So we don't own the property. We are, we, we uh, act as, a, the, as I said, the agent for the property. So when a show is done in, uh, on Broadway or off Broadway, whether it's a play or a musical, uh, the producer reserves certain rights or if, if, if the show has, um, What's the word I want? Thank you, vested. <laughs> if the show is vested on Broadway, uh, which is usually opening night, or after a certain number of performances agreed upon by the producer and the author off Broadway, um, then the producer shares a certain subsidiary rights. Uh, and that's the right to share in the author's future income, but also the author, the producer usually negotiates for certain. Uh, rights in foreign territories, or the right to do a tour, or the right to present the show in uh, other cities. A very successful show, the producer might go ahead and exercise that. Uh, but even on a very successful show, um, having been on both sides of the, uh, uh, of the deal as a producer and as, uh, as a licensor, uh, I found that um, the producer probably taking just their subsidiary rights, taking their 40%, or let's just use that as an example of the author's future income, turns out to be about the same as what they would make if they did the productions, they produced the productions themselves or sent out the tour themselves, um, and they have no risk. It's coming to them without investing any additional money. So um, uh, a savvy producer may just opt to allow the licensing house uh, to take it over and move it and move it forward, um, and uh, so we'll look at a property on Broadway or off Broadway. We'll ascertain um, uh, through doing our own homework and due diligence what we think this property will do in the uh, near and distant future. Uh, some properties uh, are pretty much going to have a life professionally and very little amateur. Uh, other properties may have very little professional life, but may have a very long tail in the amateur market. And based on that, we may or may not offer an advance to the author against the licensing royalties. And, um, uh, and then we will make a deal. The deal is usually struck between the author's agent and, um, Samuel French. The producer, although they share in the uh, subsidiary rights, and we'll get a portion of that advance uh, from the author based on their uh, their participation in subsidiary rights. The producer does not have a um, uh, a say in where the property is going unless they specifically negotiated for that, which um, is a very rare instance, and in which case they usually just have approval over the licensing house. Um, but this is a, an arrangement made between the author and the uh, and the licensing house, in this case, Samuel French, uh, and uh, the, the, it's negotiated with the author's agent. So once that deal is made and Sam French carries the the license or whatever licensing house carries the license, how does a production um, I'm sorry, a playhouse um, go about uh, you know, purchasing the, the, the right, the, the license to perform that play? Right. Well, they're not actually purchasing anything. They are licensing, is the, is the correct word. They're licensing the rights to present the play in a specific location uh, for a specific number of performances during a, on specific dates. And what will happen is they will be directed to our website where they will fill out an application uh, based on the type of production it is, a either fixed fee or a royalty-based royalty will be uh, determined and offered to the producer 
Uh, and if they want to move forward, then we make a license. We usually are taking um, some monies in advance to hold that license. And, um, and so it's, it's done in that fashion. Our, our objective is, is, to, is to create the most licenses, the highest quality licenses, the highest revenue generating licenses for our authors. Our authors entrust us to um, maximize the value of their properties and also to protect their properties. So we want to make sure that the right production is being done uh, and a production that um, uh, they're going to be uh, happy with. Right. So we're going to return uh, to that protection of the property in a second, but just for a moment, uh, back on on making sure that you uh, maximize the profits and get that this production get those productions happening. Do you is there work done on your end to uh, market, uh, especially marketable license properties to uh, playhouses, or is it mostly done sort of by nature of of what the playhouse wants? Uh, well, that's a twofold question. Um, uh, uh, many a playhouse knows what they want um, and uh, will come after it. But more and more we're seeing both professional and amateur groups, whether those are uh, regional theaters or um, commercial producers or, tour or touring operators um, or community theaters or colleges or high schools, um, they're not locked into any particular um, uh, play. They may even be calling for a certain play, but they're open to suggestion. And so this business uh, of licensing plays for many years was a, um, was a very passive business where the, the rationale was, we have a tremendous catalog. Give us your play. We'll put it in our catalog. The phone will ring, and we will license it for you. Um, and when um, myself and our president, Nate Collins, got here uh, about five years ago, we looked at each other and we said, that's the stupidest thing we ever heard of. Um, and we built a licensing department um, that's uh, the largest in the industry, and I venture to guess probably larger than all of our competitors combined. We have uh, 15 people on the floor in New York and another uh, eight in London that just do licensing. They're divided into groups of professional, uh, community, college, um, elementary school, high school um, that are specialists in those areas. And they are on the phones, not only fielding calls, but actually um, reaching out to our customers. We like to say that when we found the business, it was a fielding model, and we moved it to a pitching model. We were actually on the phone pitching our shows um, and really getting uh, in sync with our customers, learning what their objectives are, helping them find the right shows for themselves, um, providing them lots of materials to read and look at and the like. But our model going forward in the future is really to move from fielding to pitching to a coaching model, where we um, are trusted um, uh, in a trusted relationship with our customer, and we want to help them do really successful theater, which means we're here to help them answer their questions, regardless if it's our property or not. Um, one of my favorite musicals of all time is uh, West Side Story. And if we get a call, it's not, it's not a Samuel French show, but I love West Side Story. And I just use it as an example. If one of our customers calls up and is having a problem with West Side Story, whether they don't know where to find uh, a set or they don't know how to market it, whatever, we want to be that trusted coach to them to help them with their production, whether it's a Samuel French property or not. We feel that by creating that relationship, um, it will only serve us uh, in the future. But that's just the licensing portion of it. Um, we also have a, a very robust marketing team. Five years ago, when we came to Samuel French, we had one part-time marketing person. 
Uh, we now have a staff of uh, uh, seven in New York and another two uh, in, uh, in London um, that do nothing but market our titles. And they market it in, in various ways, whether it's um, in person going to conferences, whether it's through our website. We have an online magazine called Breaking Character. We are the most active um, on social media. Uh, we do lots of advertisements. We, have, we usually have the back cover of American Theater Magazine uh, for select shows. We are constantly putting out, um, we used to put out a catalog. We no longer put out a catalog, but twice a year we put out a professional journal, which, not, which has a select group of plays, uh, but articles about them and interviews and the like. It's more of a magazine than it is a catalog. And um, there are different shows selected, different times of the year. We also put out a catalog of sorts, again, sort of a magazine journal for musicals separate. We also put out one for um, community theaters. So we are very active in touching um, our customers, reaching out to them, and um, really determining their needs and trying to um, uh, provide them with the best possible solutions. On top of promoting the opportunity to license the work, the licensing house has another important job, ensuring that no one is abusing the license. And that's where the Sharon's Music Man and Shelton's Last Days of Judas Iscariot got into trouble. To give us a background for our discussion of copyright issues, I asked Howard Sherman, director of the Arts Integrity Initiative at the New School of Performing Arts, to take us through the recent licensing dispute over a production of Stephen Adley Gerges's The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. Uh, being doing this as quickly as possible, the Shelton Theater in San Francisco was doing a production of Steve Dadley Gerges's uh, The Last Days of Judas Iscariot came to the attention of the licensing house dramatist play service that they were performing a radically altered version of the text that the show had been cut down to 80 minutes. Uh, a key monologue had been moved. They contacted Stephen and asked what he would like done. And Stephen actually rather generously said, you know, if they'll put a notice in the program that makes very clear that this production is not my script, it was altered without uh, my approval, it doesn't represent my work, I'll let them finish their run, which at that point was, I think, five or six performances. They created the insert, they used the language that Stephen gave them, but put what, you know, something that resembled a big red warning stamp across the um, the message uh, as if to suggest it was possibly a gimmick, possibly that they were being snarky about what Stephen had asked them to do. He was reaching out personally to um, the the folks who were responsible for the show and not getting any response. He made very clear that he did not want to shut the show down because the idea of doing this to a small theater company and what it would mean to the actors is not something he he was eager to do. But getting no response and feeling that they'd they'd not really adhered to to the request he made when he'd already made such an enormous gesture of saying that they could go ahead and do their remaining performances of of this really radically altered script. He finally said, you know what, I'm sorry, you, you can't continue. And on Saturday, prior to what would have been their last four performances, they received a cease and desist letter informing them that they no longer, no longer had the rights to produce the show. Subsequently, Stephen did connect with uh, Matt Shelton, who ran the theater, and they sort of came to an understanding that it had not been a good thing, but Stephen 
and wish the theater well. And uh, they they feel, you know, they ended on a good note with uh, with lessons learned. So that's the, the quick version that I that I can tell you. So, Howard, there's a lot to unpack in terms of the legal issues behind what happened. Before we get into the actual intellectual property issues in play, obviously plays get licensed all the time. And in the last month alone, I've heard of two to three cases where unauthorized changes were made to a work. And in the case of Judas Iscariot, it sounds like the licensing company did a great job in identifying this as a problematic production. Is a licensing house responsible for checking up on every production that they license? That would be impossible because you're you're talking about tens of thousands of productions uh, across the U.S. every year. When you consider that you're talking about professional, community, educational, et cetera, et cetera. Typically, it will someone may become aware of it. A licensing house may become aware of it through a review or an article in a newspaper that may catch their eye. It may be because someone in that community who is familiar either with the work or with the laws calls up and says, you need to know something about this production. Uh, There have been times where, given the work that I do, I've been the person who calls the licensing house and says, I just heard about this. And are you aware? I don't like I don't. I am not the copyright police, so I don't want anybody thinking I am that. But when there are egregious violations of artists' rights, that's something that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed wherever it takes place, because fundamentally what we're talking about is the right of an author to have their work represented as they wrote it. And if you, I mean, according to Stephen, based on what he heard from from Shelton Theater, it, there was at least 45 minutes worth of text cut out of the play. So if somebody is going to see that show thinking that they have seen Stephen Adligirgis's Last Days of Judas Iscariot, they, they may not even know that that what they're seeing isn't the play and and that's not again it's not fair to to the generative artist namely in this case the author the case of shelton where 45 minutes of text was cut is sort of cut and dry it's clear that this should not have been done without Kyrgyz's approval and it was not a gray area what about a less egregious edit made for more reasonable purposes, like uh, a high school that wants to remove expletives from a production so that they can perform it without getting into trouble with parents or administrators? Well, but let's let's be clear. Any alteration of the text without the approval of the author of their rep- or their representatives is a violation. That is not to say that there are not authors and works which the, uh, these requests are made, and the authors have every right to decide whether they agree or disagree with what's been proposed. The problem arises when schools, non-professional theaters, professional theaters, what have you, decide, oh, it's just a little bit, so we can just do it. It's not really hurting anything. and. They don't have the right to decide as soon as they start altering the work. And then there's the slippery slope of, well, if you get the idea that you can alter texts and if students see texts being altered in high school or at university level, then they get the sense that this is something they can do if they go forward in the field. You know, to to your example, uh, you refer to expletives. I'm going to vary that slightly. Uh, Earlier this year, there was a production of Ragtime that was planned for a high school in New Jersey. And after some complaints uh, because a couple of students told their parents that the play included the N-word, suddenly the school announced, "Okay." We're going to remove all offensive words from ragtime and made a, made a public announcement about this. 
The problem is, A, they don't have that right, and B, the authors of Ragtime have been very clear about the fact that it is central to that story that the racial slurs, which are ugly and offensive, are central to the telling of that story. And so had the school tried to go forward with that expurgated version, deciding for themselves which words were offensive and which words were not, they would have lost the rights. In that case, there were an awful lot of people who defended the author's rights, the integrity of the work, and the school reconsidered their position and ultimately the show was done as written. But if, if, if every producing entity, whether educational, what have you, thinks they have the right to decide what's right in the show and what can go from the show, that way lies madness. Are the rules the same for the educational use of a script for a class, like a scene study class without a public performance? Can they uh, make textual edits without violating copyright? Educational work, classroom work, is, is it's not exempted from copyright per se, but there's an understanding within copyright law that the use of copyrighted material solely for educational use is permitted. It's once you bring in an audience, and I'm not even saying a paying audience, but an audience, once it rises to a production, a presentation of the work, then you're talking about acquiring rights, et cetera, et cetera. If, if there was a classroom that was, again, you can understand why maybe in a high school classroom, if it's just in the classroom, they may expurgate a few words, but they're not representing the public that this is the total work of the author. If they're doing the show for the entire school, that falls into being a performance and they don't, they don't have the rights to do it without permission and they don't have the rights to alter it without permission. You know, I should tell you, you know, there, there are, there are obviously certain shows when you talk about, about the school, uh, opportunities, uh, particularly high school, junior high schools and high schools. Um, the questions that come up about shows, it's very rare that there's a new question. And the licensing houses already know what the authors will and will not permit. Um, in the case of, of Spamalot, Spamalot actually has on the website of the licensing house all of the edits that are permissible. So you just, you've got them. You don't even need to call unless you've got a question that doesn't fit within what they've already said is allowed. But in cases where these approved changes are not stipulated, if you're a producer or a director and you have a limitation, whether that's an angry mob of parents, a limited production budget, or maybe you have like a great new idea that you think will really add to the show and contribute to the author's intent, what can you do to ensure that the changes you make are okay with the author and will not violate the copyright? If you have a question, if your concept for the show, if where you're producing the show merits or, or is perceived as having a rationale for why there might need to be some, you know, I'm really speaking of small changes, make the call. You may be told no, and that has to be understood. But where you really get into trouble, is with the idea that, and this is something that goes around, that it's, uh, you hear this phrase, better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And that's the most wrong-headed idea here. These companies that represent shows, you are their clients. They want you to do their shows, but they also have to represent the interest of their other clients, the authors, but they'll talk to you. They'll tell you yes or no. We've heard there are certain authors, it's very publicly known, don't even ask. You cannot alter Samuel Beckett. You, can, you, know, you cannot do Waiting for Godot in Outer Space. You, you 
really you can't alter Edward Albee because these are authors who in their lifetimes were very, very clear that the text is the text is the text. And in some cases where you physically place the show and conceive the show must be retained. Um, other shows in cases where they may be older shows, the authors have passed away, the estates may adhere stringently to the original concept, or they may be very open to things. I mean, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing productions of Oklahoma with multiracial casts. Uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein organization actually encourages multiracial casting in shows that were originally very clearly conceived for white actors. That sometimes you may have to change a few words here or there when you do that. So you talk to them about it. But it is the idea that it's it's not the same as doing a new play where the author's in the room with you or doing maybe the fourth production and the author is still keeping tabs. But there are ways to reach out. But you don't, A, you don't not reach out and you don't wait to reach out if you know you want to do it until you're three weeks into rehearsal. You plan ahead because if you can't make those changes, if you're told no, you have to adhere to it. And if those changes mean you don't want to do the show or for some reason can't do the show, then you have to move to another another project. That's what's, you know, in, not to not to keep going back to San Francisco, but it's interesting. One of the, the issues there is that apparently they try to keep all of their shows to 80 minutes because they do multiple presentations of work, not the same show, but they like do something at seven o'clock and do something at nine or nine thirty. So a show can't run a certain length. But if you have that kind of restriction about length, then maybe you shouldn't be looking at shows that are generally, in the case of, of Stephen's play, you know, I hear everything from two hours and 15 minutes to three hours long. It just doesn't fit your own parameters. And in fact, we also reduced the number of actors from, if I remember correctly, 15 to nine, which also changes the show in a tricky way. The common thread with the two licensing disputes this month was that changes were made without having asked permission. The licensing houses were only informed of the issue because an audience member reported the problem. As Howard suggested, the only way to successfully make changes is to ask for permission rather than forgiveness. I wanted to hear from Bruce to find out what a licensing house does when a playhouse calls with ideas for changes to a piece of licensed work before the production goes up. When we are asked if um, cuts can be made or changes to the race or gender or um, other aspects of the characters, um, we are happy to take it back to the playwright and their agent and, um, and get an answer. Sometimes the answer is, do whatever you like. You know, make the play your own. Sometimes it's absolutely not. That's not the play I wrote. I want it spoken exactly the way I wrote it. I know you cannot, you know, change um, um, uh, the, the gender of the character. I'll give you an example. Fun Home is a musical that we represent. And the authors uh, have told us that if people want to change the race of the characters, they are fine with that. Even though there are family members and the like, they are fine with any racial uh, choices um, for, the, for the, the cast. However, you cannot change the gender of the characters. It's a play about a, um, a, a young woman coming of age, discovering her sexuality, and to change her to a boy would change the entire essence of the play. Um, and her relationship with her father and her family and the like. And so you cannot change the gender. Um, so, it, you know, there are other playwrights that say, no, I don't want you to change anything. That's the way I wrote it. That's the way I want it. And we support the author's rights to control their work. Continuing with my conversation with Howard. 
I want to see if we can tie the discussion of licensing and copyright into another recent story. Earlier this summer, in early July, there was a lot of talk about a decision that David Mamet made about productions of his plays. <laughs> he decided that he didn't want theaters to have post-show talkbacks after performances, and that if they didn't comply, not only would they lose their license, but they would also face $25,000 um, in a, a, of a fine per performance. I'm wondering if these same copyright laws that we've been talking about are at play in Mamet's case. No, absolutely not. It absolutely not. It has nothing to do because it's not about the script. I mean, you know, there there are even some people who have suggested that somebody, obviously with legal wherewithal to do so, should challenge this. But the but but the issue is, it's put into the contract. If you're going to do the play, you actually have to agree to these terms, which are, in my opinion, sort of preposterous. And I hope ultimately counterproductive to people doing those work with those restrictions, because when an author starts deciding it's one thing, and I completely defend an author's right to defend their work, it is theirs, it's their right, but wanting to dictate the terms under which an audience can have a conversation about the play afterwards, that's that's bordering on its own kind of censorship. And and it's it's very unpleasant. But it has nothing to do with copyright. It only has to do with with in that case, contract and contract law. It's not my expertise, but if you sign a piece of paper saying, if we do a post-performance discussion, we'll pay you $25,000, then unfortunately, you've, you've put yourself on the line. Um, and if you can't do the play without agreeing to that, then the theater should decide what it wants in terms of a relationship with its audience and its audience's ability to have a discussion on the grounds of the theater with each other immediately after seeing the play. So shouldn't be confused at all. Totally separate issue. And, and very much, I mean, I'm unaware uh, of, of any other author with such a requirement. So limitation on post-show conversation, a different beast altogether. Let's talk about non-textual changes that might come about during the play performance or the play proper between when the curtain rises and the curtain falls. What about alternative interpretations of a play that manifest themselves in changes to the traditional sets or costumes or something else physically rather than changes to the text? I think it really has to come from a place of people who produce theater. And by produce, it can be your high school show. It can be a college show. It can be community theater. It can be at any level of production. But that the people who produce theater fundamentally understand that in the theater, the author owns their work, and they, by choosing to do that work, are committing to honoring authorial intent. That doesn't restrict certain interpretive opportunities, and when there's something that is clearly a different way of presenting the show than the author originally intended, that's when it pays to get into the conversation with the author's representatives or the author themselves. That's how we get shows like uh, A View from the Bridge, which played on Broadway, which certainly looked nothing like the production of the play when it was originally done. But that show, with its, with its virtually empty stage, with people in their bare feet, uh, with modern dress, all of those things that Eva von Hoga brought to that in terms of how he wanted to have people look at the show differently, that had to be okayed by Arthur Miller's daughter, who controls his estate. So does that mean that visual or interpretive changes to a production can violate copyright law? Because to my knowledge, that A View from the Bridge production did not involve any textual changes. I mean, not that I recall. I don't. I've seen the show multiple times. There, it, it seemed to follow everything. I think, in many ways, you know, von Hova's work does keep the text predominantly, you know, as as written. 
but he uses a visual vocabulary, which I believe his intent is to allow us to see the play in a different way. We could also look at the recent production of Glass Menagerie that Sam Gold directed, which again had had very minimal set, which actually cast an actor with the disability in the role of Laura and and really stripped the play down to the bone. Uh, and yeah, you absolutely had to look at that text in a different way. But clearly that was done with the approval of the Tennessee Williams estate. Howard, wrapping up, bottom line is, if you want to produce a work, secure the license. And if you intend to do something textual or otherwise which might be interpreted as against the intent or the preference of the playwright, you've got to contact the licensing house for approval. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say for, for people who are listening, this is, this is about ethical practice in the arts and the ability of people who work in the theater to make a living from working in the theater. It's hard enough. We hear, you know, most playwrights say the only way they can really make a living is if they get a good teaching job or if they get television or film work because there's not a huge amount of money for working in the theater to begin with. But the one thing they get in theater that they don't get when they work in the other media is the fact that they continue to own their work. And we have to respect and honor it, especially if we want future generations to be creating new work for the theater. Thank you for listening to The O'Henry Report. We're off next week, but we will be back with our next episode on the week of September 11th. You can find The O'Henry Report on BroadwayWorld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www. OHenryProductions.com. From myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. Have a great end of summer, and we'll see you in September. <laughs>